In this episode, we will be discussing The Diary of Anne Frank. This book contains mentions of the Holocaust. Welcome to Moral of the Story, where we read the read, talk the talk, and walk the walk. Hopefully, you enjoy starting this chaotic journey with us, trying to better ourselves through the morals of literature from every time period and place in the world. We're your hosts, Adriana, Priyanka, Aaron, and Sky. Stay tuned for the episode. In this episode, we will be talking about the diary of Anne Frank. So we have two guests this episode. The first is somebody that was born in the gray area between the greatest generation and the silent generation. And she actually knew the Franks personally, Lorene Nussbaum. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I'm bad with names. Our second guest, born in the baby boomer generation, is the daughter of a Dutch Auschwitz survivor, Ina van Dam. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, both of you, for recording it with us because this is an incredible experience. If any of you would like to share something about yourselves, go ahead. If not, we can move on. Okay, good. Hi, my name is Ina, Ina Marie Van Dam. Um, I am, as um, was said earlier, the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, Auschwitz. She's still alive, 93 years old, living in Seattle, Washington. Um, I'm the oldest of her three children, and most second generation, which is what I am, most second generation um, people find that in many ways, although we didn't go through the experience, we have nonetheless been affected by it. And so, although this was a topic that was never discussed in my home, I mean, I, we knew that my mother had been in the camps, but it wasn't talked about. Um, nonetheless, I believe that all of us have been affected by it. And a few years ago, because of that, um, I got in touch with the Holocaust uh, Center for Humanity in Seattle, Washington, and we put together my mom's story, and we got her to talk on video Having never wanted to do this before, at age 91, she agreed to do this for her grandchildren. And we got, for the first time, her chronology of her story. And that's been very helpful. And ever since I've been, for the past year or so, I have been going to the schools while the schools were still meeting in person. More recently, we've been doing it on Zoom and telling her story because I think the Holocaust and the diary of Anne Frank, um, my mother was actually in the same school as Anne Frank. Um, although she didn't know her. And I understand, Lorene, that you were also in that same school. And I'm dying to know if you might not have known my mother, whose name is Ada von Esso. Um, anyway, that's enough. That's enough introduction. We'll talk more as we go along. So thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Uh, Lorene, would you like to add anything? Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to meet you here because I do know your mother. Your mother. I knew your Oh, parents. my gosh. In fact, I looked out your mother up at the, at the uh, Algoria. So oh, my gosh. Yeah, oh, so my gosh. Oh, my gosh. It's very, a small world. Well, I looked to see for your, your date of well, When I saw that you'd been in the same school as, as the Frank girls, I thought, oh, I know my mom was in that same school. I bet you guys knew each other. Oh, I saw of myself. I was born in Germany, in Frankfurt, just like in Frank. The Franks came to the Netherlands, to Amsterdam, in 1933, and we came in 1936. We lived in the same neighborhood, and I knew Anne and I knew Margot. I'm in age exactly between Margot and Anne, two years older than Anne, a year and a half younger than Margot. But I knew both girls, and uh, I knew Margot a little better, but at one point in our history, <clears throat> we mounted a play in my parents' apartment, and Anne was one of the actresses, so I got to see her daily while we were rehearsing. And in fact, uh, I hope you don't mind, but you remind me quite a bit of Anne. You have the same brown eyes, the same kind of hair. You really have much in common with Anne. So what else can I say? We, we, uh, we survived the war and how my family survived, you would have to read my book, it's too long to explain. Uh, we came to the United States in 1957 and um, my husband was a physicist by then. I went to the university, <clears throat> got my PhD in German and French, and became a university professor. And uh, so that's how I spent my, my life. And only after I retired, when I found out that the person who saved my family really uh, found out his story, it was written in German, and I set out to translate his life story and found it was not a good text for American readers. So then I started writing my own book, which has a little bit about the Frank family, quite a bit about Mr. Kalmeyer, who was our savior, and quite a bit about my family. Uh, I came to Seattle in 2012 after my husband died. Let's keep it at that. That's a really nice story. Thank you so much for um, those wonderful responses. So um, Anne Frank and her family and another family um, lived in a place they called the Secret Annex, which was, as it, as it says, a secret annex because it was a little, you know, almost like a mini house kind of thing behind another building. Um, and they, they were there because they had been forced into hiding. And the diary describes the growing threat to their lives and the family dynamics and just Anne's personal thoughts as she grew up. She writes that, like, you know, feelings of loneliness and isolation and then difficult relationships with other mem members of the household. And over time, her entries tend to become deeper and more thoughtful as they go from descriptions of daily life to profound thoughts about the war and about humanity. Okay. So we have a couple of questions just to discuss about Anne and her thoughts. What do you think about the way that Anne writes and feels about her parents, especially her mother? Do you think it's a feeling specific to her or something that all teenagers will eventually feel? Um, I feel like even though um, it seems like Anne had this feeling about her mother before they went into the annex, um, I kind of... I understand where she's coming from 
with that, um, especially with during this pandemic and being cooped up with my own family in my own home. I love them so much, but it gets to be a lot. And I can't imagine having to stay quiet and having to not having my own personal space, really. Um, and being shut into a tiny house with my entire family for a while. And another family. And another guy. With whom you're sharing yeah. a bedroom. And so I think her, her feelings aren't, like, good. But I understand completely where she's coming from. Yeah, I think that it could potentially be just the normal the, the normal friction that people will have with their parents as they grow up. But since they were all cooped together in one pretty small area, it was just um, exaggerated. I think... Uh, personally, for me, I went through the phase of really hating your parents way earlier when I was, I don't know, definitely younger than I am now, probably starting five years ago. It was like a three year period, let's say, from five years, from starting from five years ago and ending like two years ago. I really was like, no, mom, don't talk to me. I'm cool. I'm too cool for you. But now I get along <laughs> way better with them. Um but it definitely, like, my sister went through that phase way later, and she's older than me. But I think it's definitely something that just teenagers do. What, Laureen, what was your experience What with um, uh, your parents and such? I, I did not indulge very much into likes or, or dislikes. We had to survive. That was the main thought. How, how can we survive? How can I help the family survive? Uh, and... Uh, that was mostly in my thoughts. Um, my mother was very practical, very handy, and uh, kept the household together as good as she, as well as she could. Uh, my father couldn't walk because he was he the star of David, so he couldn't walk, and it was uh, finances were very difficult. Food was very difficult. Uh, I just want to say to go back to Anne Frank. Uh, even I, as an outsider, knew that. Anne's father, uh, Otto Frank, was a particularly nice and involved father. He was much more involved with the growing up of his girls than most daddies were in our, in our uh, surroundings. He stood out by being there for the kids, and uh, all of us thought he was the ideal daddy. Some, somebody had spilled the beans that on Sunday morning he would fix the breakfast for his wife, and bring breakfast to her bed. And that was unthinkable in my family. You know, my father wouldn't have thought of it. Besides, he, he had more thumbs than fingers, so I don't think he would be very good. I would have been very good at that. But Otto Frank did this kind of thing. So he, I mean, the fact that Anne drawed so much on her father is not surprising. He was really an exceptionally nice father for her. That's so sweet. <laughs> Was Margot also as close to her father as Anne was? Do you know? Say that again? Do you know if, if Margot was also as close to her father as Anne was? But her, her father was close to the girls because he, 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 he looked out for them and he had ideas, had creative ideas, what, what they could do, what they should do. Mrs. Frank was much more withdrawn, introvert. I really only experienced her as a living person uh, on Jewish holidays when she was... Uh, at a liberal Jewish synagogue in, in Amsterdam on uh, uh, Simchas Tauro, 
you know, when the kids walk around with little flags, she would organize the little kids, and she did that very nicely. But there was no uh, nothing exuding from her, like from her husband. He exuded kindness and uh, interest, and such an exceptional, very exceptional man. And we, uh, even I sensed it, you know, at, at a young age, and uh, that's why I wanted to stay close to him after the war. When he came back by himself, I always felt. I can be a little bit of a daughter for him. And so that's how we struck up a relation after the war. That's really nice. By the way, because because I don't want to make confusion, I confuse your name. It's Erin that looks like Anne Frank. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I want to be, to be clear. Erin does look like Anne Frank a little. <laughs> I see yeah, it. She does. Really. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So um, Anne writes that she often feels her emotions are invalidated by others in the annex. Have you ever felt the same way? Do you know people who have felt the same way? Yeah, I think it's not nearly to the extent that Anne must feel invalidated because she's like a little girl, right? And she has these needs and their family's priority is to survive. Like Lorraine said, it's it's to survive. And um, so... I just feel like she must feel constantly like she's not being heard when there's like reason for them not to necessarily hear her all the time. They have other priorities. No, yeah, because we we are not stuck in, you know, a small room where we're not allowed to make our presence. No, we're, we're allowed to go out and say, hey, please listen to me because I have such and such opinion. She does write that... Um, she feels like her um, emotions are invalidated because she's a young teenage girl. And I'm, I'm reading that and I'm there thinking like she, she is a young teenage girl and that could be part of the reason why she's having such intense emotions, but that doesn't make them any less real or any less valid. I think you're also dealing with a different generation. I know I've asked my mom questions about her parents and, you know, what they told her, because my mother was 12 when the Germans invaded. Um, so that's old enough. And this is about the same age as when Anne went into hiding. Um, and that's old enough to, you know, understand what's going on and to pick up on the tensions in the household. And what she said was, and she's right, you know, well, that was a different generation. Parents didn't share the same way with their kids that your parents probably share with you. Um, I, I think we see that as a lack of respect. That's how I would receive, and that's how I would perceive that. But I'm not sure that it was felt that it was meant that way. Let's put it that way. And um, there is also the fact that in, certainly in that generation, children were to be seen and not heard. Um, I think that that was a large part of it. So, so partly it's generational, is, is my feeling. Because Otto Frank was such an enlightened person, I think that Frank girls had more freedom and were heard more than most other kids of my generation. I'm a year older than, two years older than Anne, so uh, about the age of your mom. Uh, and so, uh, in a way, it was a much more liberated household than most others of that generation. On the other hand, I, I'm the middle one of three girls, and I am sure that my younger sister always felt like 
sort of poo-pooed by the rest of us, not by my parents, but by me, by my older sister. And uh, we had three children, two boys and a girl, and the girl was the youngest, and she also felt very much poo-pooed by her big brothers. So there is something in the position in the family that uh, makes you an easy victim for being poo-pooed and not being taken seriously. Yeah, That's a good point, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I like the scientific expression, poo-poo. <laughs> like we can tell you're an academic, Laureen. I love- <laughs> Whatever gets the point across. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So shall I move on to the next question? Sure. Yes. So, though the reason that they're in hiding is because of the war and the Holocaust, Anne mainly writes about daily life in the annex. Why do you guys think that is? I think one thing that I want to like point out is that Anne has a distaste for politics, as as one might assume, because she's you know she's a little girl. I mean, not all of us are super interested in politics, and so I think that she only writes about those like the things that she cares about and for her that's everyday life and that's the argument that she has with her with uh mrs van dan or or her mother you know yeah that makes sense or like at at a certain point like peter and and such things like that i also feel like that'd be a bit more enjoyable to write about than like just the news kind of because um, it also was probably a good outlet for her emotions and her to like express the frustration that she might have felt. So um, that could have been also part of it. I think it also may just may uh, could have could have, might have been because of the it 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 might have just felt a little bit far away. Yeah, that's true. She's hidden away. She doesn't necessarily get news about politics other than on the radio. Yeah, I think even on the radio, it's not like a person that young fully grasps everything. Even an adult, I think it would be hard for them to grasp everything about the war. Also, it's it feels to me like it's just, again, not her priority. She has so many other things to think about. Like, she thinks about Peter and she thinks about, you know, how how am I going to like live on a day-to-day basis? How am I going to continue my education? How am I going to do things like that? She thinks it's not her priority to care for her country. It's her priority to care for herself. Uh, and, and also her main priority is how do I become a writer? Because she wanted to be a writer and she very consciously read difficult books because she wanted to uh, learn about style and about uh, how to express yourself and how to, built an argument. She was very, very consciously trying to become a writer. And that was her preoccupation, really. And we see that her writing evolves. She becomes extremely, extremely eloquent. Yeah. Like, I remember being her age at the time that she started writing at the beginning, even in the beginning, she just had an eloquency that another 13 year old girl wouldn't have, especially from our generation, you know, just like I I've never heard another 13 year old girl speak the way that she speaks. And she's just, she has a knack for words for language. Yeah. But you want to remember that what we've read is in translation because she wrote in Dutch. That is true. 
And I point that That's out true. because when I introduced myself, I didn't say, but I work professionally as I have worked as a translator, but I work primarily as an interpreter. So I'm always very much aware of the fact that something was originally in one language and it's been transposed into another. Just have any of you um, have any of you read the original in Dutch? I haven't. Of course, yeah, Laureen, you probably have, right? Of yeah. course. Yeah. I read it in 1947 when the book first came out in Dutch. It wow. didn't even exist in English at the time. Yeah. So was she just as as proficient in, in language? Is, is, the, is there something in the translation that makes her seem more academically there? Or like, is, is she just as proficiently um, a... No, I think Mrs. Doubleday did a very nice job in her translation. I, I have no quarrel with the translation. I have a quarrel with Otto Frank, after I said many nice things about him because I liked him so much, he did something that he should not have done. He, uh, there were two versions of Anne's diary. Most people don't know that. But she, uh, in, in the spring of 1944, she started to rewrite her diary with the intention to write an epistolary novel. Do you know what that is, an epistolary novel? A novel based on, on letters, okay? So she started rewriting, and she got all the way to the spring of 1944 with her rewrite. And Otto, for reasons I have no idea, I cannot fathom, mixed the two versions, the original one and the later one. And that's what you have read. You have never read uh, the final version of what Anne wrote, because it doesn't exist in English. The only place where you can find it would be in the library if you check out the critical edition of Anne's diary. And there you see her original version, the A version, the rewrite, the B version, and you see what Otto Frank published. And uh, however fond I am of him, I never forgave him for taking the liberty to uh, mix up two versions and not owning up to it. Uh, that was, or maybe even worse, you might have read uh, what's called the definitive edition, it's even more <laughs> Oh, oh, we read that one. Yeah. Is that the one you read? Oh, okay. Oh, that makes me mad. The definitive edition is a ploy by the Anne Frank Fund in Basel, who have the copyrights. They wanted to have a new version to lock up the copyrights. Uh. And the woman who did this, Miriam Pressler, used Otto Frank's version, then went back to the A version and to the B version and mixed it somewhere. Oh, and that's, it's just a cocktail. That's fun. <laughs> oh, okay. It should not be allowed. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for the lesson on that. I will make yeah, sure to Yeah, good to know. But what you, what you want to do is make sure that your school library has the critical edition because it's really fascinating to see how Anne changed what she wrote uh, a year and a half before, how she matured as a person and as a writer. It's a fascinating thing to do. Okay. I will do that I'm after actually this. checking right For now. <laughs> there are lots of letters and written reflections about the Holocaust and the war. But So what about Anne's specifically makes it so special? I think it's, it's the fact that, one, it was written during. It's like not in retrospect. It's the fact that it's like written during the time. And the fact that it's from a child, a very definitely like academically advanced uh, great thinking child but the fact that it was written from a child's perspective is even even more shocking it, it definitely gave this like perspective that like children aren't incompetent like they understand things 
personally, I thought it was because she just seems so normal. It, it makes you, it makes you realize that these were real average normal people that this awful, awful thing happened to. It it makes it more personal for you. Because reading Anne's diary, it's almost like getting to know her in a way. Yeah, I, I cried at the end because I felt there were many diaries written during the war by young Jewish people who did not survive. There's uh, a book by um, Jack Boris, We Were Witnesses. There four people, plus and Frank, so five. And he has excerpts of diaries. And there's a very big, fat book by a woman called Subfuda, who is uh, whose book, the title is... Uh, Forgotten, no, not lost pages, salvaged, salvaged pages. Uh, also, very astute ob- observations by teenagers. And you wonder how come that Anne is the one that became so famous and the other people you don't even know about. You have any idea why? Anne's was published so soon? I don't know. That's a wild guess. I know you're right. But Anne's was the one that was first published as early as 1947 in Dutch and 1953 in English. And there's another reason that I've heard suggested, and it may have come from you, Lorene, I'm not sure. So forgive me if I trespass on this, um, but it makes sense. Her name is very easy to pronounce in a lot of languages. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's, one of my, that's one of my stances, yes. Might have heard it from me, but you might. Have <laughs> I may have heard it from you. I want to give you. I'll give you credit. <laughs> okay. No, because some of the other names are hard to pronounce. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? And people yeah. would stumble yeah. over it, and so and Frank also easily from your tongue, and and it's a name that you can very easily identify with. Next door neighbor could be called and Frank. You know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But it's also her style, of course, her writing. What I find kind of interesting is um so when i was in eighth grade i did a show about the holocaust called um i never saw another butterfly and we had um a lot of resources given to us to read and to look at and stuff um and a lot of the scenes from the show and a lot of the monologues in the show were real life accounts from diaries or from poems that kids have written and stuff and it's just, it's so weird because normally in schools, they mainly teach about Anne Frank and a few other notable people. And there are all these wonderful voices. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not trying to discredit Anne Frank at all. She was an incredible writer and an incredible person. But I feel like now in society, we only focus on a handful of people when it comes to the Holocaust. And that we really need to widen our horizons. One thing that I like, I think that isn't really interesting, kind of effect of not not understanding how many people were affected by the Holocaust because of the only handpicked few tales that we hear of it, is the fact that not a lot of people know that the Holocaust actually happened. Well, on that point, I know that Washington State has just um, promulgated a law that the curriculum now has to contain a unit on the Holocaust. My classes on the Holocaust was barely anything and gave like no justice. Yeah, I definitely learned more in my individual. Yeah, just reading in Frank's diary by myself a couple of years ago and then doing research based off that because that was kind of my starting point. But I barely learned anything in school. 
Well, that's probably yeah. true of school in general for all of us. But <laughs> um, Consider Peter and Anne's relationship. It seems to be on the border between friendship and romance. Or at least that's how it seemed to me reading it. Do you think it's inevitable that some sort of relationship would happen between people who are stuck with each other and hiding for oh, about two years? I recently saw this YouTube video. Granted, this is like a completely different, it was like a true crime YouTube video, but it comes to the same point that there are these things, um, like this psychology thing called trauma bond, where people who go through similar trauma share this bond that develops kind of quickly and intensely um, through their shared experiences. And I feel like although Anne and Peter's relationship didn't develop that fast, it still could have had to do a lot with their shared experiences and what they've both gone through in the annex. I think in places where it, in times when it seemed like it crossed the line, I think the line was pretty blurred for two young kids living together in a time of extreme like just wartime pretty much because they were in hiding um so i mean i think it's inevitable that their feelings would get complicated especially if they're both growing up during that time and was outgoing peter uh, already during the time of a diary if you look up uh, may the 19th uh, 1944, she has a short entry where she says uh, uh, she locked her, uh, her inner self up and uh, Peter, Peter is sort of, she leaves Peter behind. And she says uh, he would need a much stronger call bar to find entrance to her inner self. And the next day she starts rewriting her diary. So she made a decision, no hanky-panky with Peter, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to rewrite my diary. And she did this very consciously. Uh, you cannot find in the version that you have that she started on the 20th to rewrite her diary because Otto Frank did not print that. But you can find on the 19th that she says, uh, I'm done with Peter, which is really quite interesting. That she does it on the 19th and the next day she starts very, very concentrated work. She wrote 324 pages in the next two and a half months, which is quite a lot of work. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think what may also have driven it to some extent is that they didn't really feel that they belonged, either one of them, in their families. And maybe with each other, there was a bit more of a sense of belonging because they could relate. They were closer in age. Um, they were going through comparable situations. They knew each other's families better than most people know each other's families ever um, through circumstance. Yeah, but Anne but, says, uh, Anne noticed that Peter was not nearly as intelligent as she was, and that he was not ambitious, and that, he, that his morals were kind of weak. You know, uh, she she did not approve of him, really. There are no personality changes uh, forged into the edition that you have read. What, what, is, what they did, what Otto did, and Miriam Pressler did even worse, was mixing up two versions. But it's answered. They, they, didn't, they didn't add anything there. I mean, oh, very, okay. very, very minor things, for instance. Anne is uh, indignant about the poor Dutch of the older generation. And uh, <laughs> uh, the remark that the, the mothers were much worse than the fathers 
of course, because the mothers stayed home, they didn't have a chance to practice their Dutch. But there were also critical remarks about the man's, uh, Otto Frank's uh, Dutch. And he left that one out. That was only <laughs> <laughs> half a sentence of no importance. No, there are definitely, you are not getting a distorted uh, image of Anne from the version that you have read. That, that, okay. that, that's not, that's, you don't have to worry about that's that. That's great to know. Yeah. Did you, Lorraine, did you um, confront Otto about the fact that he had changed things? And what did he say? He never let on to that. (laughs) I didn't know. I mean, I I wrote him an official letter after I got my PhD. And I said I wanted to work on Anne's diary as a literary work. Did he give me the permission? And he said, sure. And that was in 1977. He died in 1980, and only after all the papers of Anne, her diaries and the handwritten pages, were given to the Dutch Institute of, of, for War Documentation, only then it came out. So I had no idea. Oh. I had no idea why Otto was still alive. That only came out after his death. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, only okay. he, he kept the secret <laughs> very much so, yeah. That's fascinating. Perhaps did he just want to keep certain parts of his child to himself rather than to the rest of the world, maybe? Well, if uh, when he made choices between the original version and Anne's more mature version, he often went back to the earlier version where little Anne needed her daddy. Uh, uh, the more mature Anne, a year later, said, I cannot even confide in my father because he doesn't confide in me. These are the kinds of things he left out. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he definitely felt closer to the little Anne that came to Pim all the time and, and, and found comfort. Uh, that has, might have fulfilled his psychological needs. So he made choice, uh, choices. Uh, and and the, the more mature and uh, the one that uh, felt that she was totally on her own when it came to important decisions, that's what he left out. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Well, totally understandable reasons, but um, that doesn't make them right. No, it doesn't make it right. No. <laughs> no. Interesting, though. That's that's I mean, that's quite fascinating. I hadn't I hadn't known that. Well, I, I, I don't ever think that you need to buy the critical edition. It's a fat book. It's several inches thick and very heavy and quite expensive. <laughs> but you want to have a look at it. You want to. You want to be sure that your library has it and that you can look at it. That's important. Don't 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 purchase it because it's not fun reading. It's not fun reading those parallel print uh, texts. It's really uh, very distracting. So it's excellent for uh, academic reasons, but it's not for reading for uh, for relaxation for fun. Not at all. So the next question is very similar to um, one of the previous ones, but. As Anne grows older, she starts to write more and more about the war. Um, and this contrasts when she, she was younger and mainly wrote about the other annex occupants. So why do you think this was? One thing is, is that it it would be a little scary, maybe, to think about. And so she distracted herself from it rather than, like, talking about it. Yeah. She also, I don't know how perfectly it matches up, like, timeline-wise, but she matures over the course of the time that she's in the annex and at the same time there are more and more things happening outside like people had like a key to the 
annex or something there and they're close calls and there's a carpenter i think with the bookshelf you know and things keep happening more and more so she's maturing but at the same time the reality is coming even closer to her of course there are no distractions anymore in the beginning she still writes about her the kids in her classroom and the teachers and what have you in the ping pong uh, sessions and having ice creams uh, at Oasa and things like that. Uh, all of these things fall away. There is no outside life anymore except the news that they get from outside. And she matures and she takes in the news. Uh, it starts at, at towards the end of 1943 that she gets uh, really to think about uh, the camps and what's happening to people outside. The fall of 43. It's like the war, hearing about it on the radio, is like her only connection to the outside world. Also, jumping off about, of um, what Laureen said earlier about how Anne wanted to be a writer, it could also that she, it could also be that she also wanted to maybe try dabbling in like a journalism type of writing or like relaying events. Or that she, when she went back and Oh, wait, but we didn't read the edited version. Hmm. Well, if you, uh, even with the edition that you have of the diary, if you look at the year 1943, that whole year, you only have her uh, reworked edition. The, 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 because the, the, A, the A version, the A version went lost. So Otto Frank's version is Anne's B version. And if you read that year very carefully, you see that she is very systematic. She writes about life in the uh, in the attic, you know, the breakfast, the lunch, the evening. Uh, she tries to really let us readers know as much as she could what life was like. And it is in this year, 1943, where towards the end, she uh, thinks about her friend, Lise Hosler, uh, who's, by the way, still alive in Israel. I've uh, been in touch with her for many years. And uh, she writes about uh, seeing her in a dream, and she is much more concerned about what's happening in the camps and about uh, the political situation. But that's, you'll find, in the year 1943. That's unadulterated. Yeah. It could also have been that when she was going back and rewriting, that she... Uh, since she intended for it to be read, she wanted to provide some context as to like what was happening in the world while, uh, while she's writing and thinking all of this. Okay, so in her diary entry on May 22nd, 1944, Anne reflects at length on the prejudice and discrimination against Jews. She eventually states, um, oh, it is sad, very sad that once more for the umpteenth time, the old truth is confirmed. What one Christian does is his own responsibility. What one Jew does is thrown back at all Jews. So what does she mean by this? And could this be true of all forms of prejudice? I think that what she means is that if like a Christian does something bad, it's deemed his own responsibility and treated as like an individual case. But if a Jewish person does anything, it's treated as an act by the whole community and not just by that one person. Um, and I think that 
Okay. I think that's still prevalent today um, with a lot of communities. Um, it's it's like how we keep having to repeat um, so many things about you know Muslims. Not people still can't get into their heads that not every Muslim is a bad person, and it's crazy. Or like not every black person is going to commit a crime like people still believe that and it's insane just to add a little bit of perhaps like what she's referring to well obviously she's referring to the entire holocaust right but um last year i did a project on kristallnacht and um i did a lot of research on uh herschel grinzipan is that how you pronounce it you know it's been a year I don't remember what I said or what the research was. It's a Polish name. I don't speak Polish. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So obviously they took him shooting the German ambassador to like initiate a series of actions that they had planned for a very long time, but using propaganda and things like that, they reflected it as you see this man, he's a reflection of like, all the Jewish people, which is often something that what we do in any kind of dynamic is often we use a scapegoat. Like, for example, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that this is a bad scapegoat, though scapegoat usually refers to a bad thing. But we use George Floyd as like a initiative for the Black Lives Movement. But this has been happening like the police brutality has been happening towards black people has been happening for eons and eons and like ages. And we just, we use somebody to like uphold values. And you see, this is in this case, it's, it's like in a very, very derogatory way. Slight side tangent to another, to a previous question about why Anne's Anne's diary is so special. Um, I think we might've just hit on it. It, She's just, the person that happened to be the the symbol or the scapegoat, yeah. I don't want to use scapegoat because that has a very negative connotation. An icon, actually. Yes. An icon. Scapegoat is, is for blame. So it's not even connotation, it's denotation. Um, so I don't think scapegoat is the correct word, but she's she's is the... One who's chosen as the symbol of the, the face of yeah exactly she's the she's the public she's an, face uh, yeah icon we often I think what she's referring to is the fact that often like Christianity also is held at a very like higher standard per se to any other religion so so like when people are like oh look at this good Christian child you know. Often people would say things like that. And I think what I'm trying to get at is the fact that Christianity is, in a sense, held in society as, like, as, a, as an individual thing. There's a lot of people who believe that if you're Christian, that puts you at a higher place. Whereas often people will use for every other thing that they feel uncomfortable with. So, like, when since uh, like Islam is different than Christianity, we, we will take a, a scapegoat or a, an, I, an icon 
depending on the denotation and connotation of the situation and, and put it in the face of, of that entire religion or big umbrella term. So like we'd say, you know, Islam, oh, Osama bin Laden, but that's not true. That's entirely inaccurate, you know? So like, like that, we've, we've done that with Anne and the, Hol- the Holocaust. And then we've also, we did that with, or the Holocaust did that with uh, Herschel and, and, or he, Hitler manipulated that intentionally with Herschel and um, Kristallnacht. I do want to point out, though, that Hitler had already planted the seeds for that sort of hatred previously. Like he was aware of this, this like phenomenon that human humanity had, and 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 used it as an opportunity to take advantage. I'm sorry if that didn't make sense. Doesn't make really good sense. Yeah, you're good. Anne Frank's diary has been banned in many places. So, why do you think? Why do you think were some of the reasons? Or if you know the reasons, what are they? And then, why or why not should books be banned? I know one reason is because specifically the passage where she, or the one entry where she talks about like sex. Entries referring to sexuality. Some are more explicit than others. Yeah. So just like, just like things that were extremely um, obvious that, that um, she was talking about, just very, very frank entries about uh, sexuality. I know that um, a lot of schools have also banned it because they see um, or they see Anne's description of like females as being like female bodies as being beautiful as being um, like a um, a homosexual statement and some schools and that's another issue entirely of some schools being against that but yeah but that's another thing that's that they banned it for I think I read somewhere that some school, maybe schools plural, banned it for being too depressing, which just seems like people not wanting to accept that the Holocaust is a reality that happened and you're just trying to shelter children from the atrocities of war. That would mean we couldn't talk about anything anymore. One one thing that I will say is is that I expect Going into reading Anne's diary again, I I didn't necessarily remember a lot of what she had written. So going into it again, I expected it to be a lot sadder than it was. Anne is a very happy girl. I would not describe her diary as depressing in any way. Sure, it's snarky at sometimes and and like it's very opinionated, but I wouldn't say that it's like depressing. Yeah. I mean, it's sad, but it's also the reality. So I don't think you should be like, don't read this book because it'll remind you of how sad things are. But you can't just not talk about an important part of history because you think it's sad, you know? That is true. What I will say, though, is a lot of history in, in schools that are taught is extremely whitewashed. And the Holocaust is almost always glossed over. And, and, and it's, it's 100% of the time it ends with, and anti-Semitism does not exist anymore because we are great beings. You know, something, something along that, like, sense. Which is the same with, like, slavery and, like, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Hearing the Martin Luther King assemblies at my school, I don't know if other people's school do that, but my school would have assemblies for Martin Luther King Day. And I, for the longest time, like, an embarrassingly long amount of time, 
I thought racism was just gone because nobody talked about how it was still prevalent. And additionally, Holocaust Memorial Day is January 27th, and I have never been at a school that has done anything for that or has even mentioned the Holocaust yeah. on that day. You know, we just don't we just don't put enough importance to it. We we act like it never happened and and while we've made I think Anne's diary one thing that makes it very very good perhaps like helps uphold the the why Anne's diary is so popular idea is is the fact that Anne it, it's a good introduction to the Holocaust you know it's it's relatable and and she she doesn't talk constantly about it but there's that overlying factor and, and everyone can can think the way Anne thinks. So so I think that it's it's a good introduction to the Holocaust and it's a good thing to give to a child and say, read this and understand what happened to to these people. You know? So that's another reason that Anne's diary could be super popular is because it's not strictly on the Holocaust necessarily. I'm so glad that you say it's an introduction because there are people who think once they have read the diary of Anne Frank, they know all about the Holocaust. <laughs> That's, of course, not the case. This is a, a first getting acquainted with what happened. And uh, if you want to really know about the Holocaust, you have to keep reading some other things, Giselle and, and, and so on. Anne barely touches on the topic, so I would say. Oh. I think... I think she mentioned some yeah, camps, but not specifically concentration camps. She, she wouldn't know about it. Oh, exactly. She wouldn't have known. She talks about the hiding, yeah. right? Because hide and, and and she doesn't know about the streets. She doesn't know about the camps, right? She hasn't been there. She, she writes about uh, Westerbork, yeah. So I'm actually going to read the next question because, like Priyanka said, it's relevant now. Um, why do you think it's important that we learn about the Holocaust? Do you think we learn enough about the Holocaust? And then are there other important parts of history that just aren't talked about? One thing that I will mention that I find baffling is that in a lot of schools, history is an elective. It's it's an elective class. You have to take only one quarter of it. I'm pretty sure it was like that in our school district until like we entered school. So my my friend's mother went to school at our school and she didn't take history. Uh, she took it one semester in, in the seventh grade, and that was it. So that's one thing that baffles me, is that it's not a required class a lot of the time. So we not only is it that a lot of kids don't have the opportunity to learn about it, a lot of kids aren't going to seek to learn about it because they've never even heard of it, which is insane to me. I feel like, especially now, the only thing that we should be talking about is the Holocaust. We have to keep reminding people that it happened and that's, that's a thing that, that's happened. And, and, you know, we talk about the Uyghurs in China and, and, and how, the, how they're having a very, there's a Holocaust happening in China currently, right? We have to talk about that and we have to relate it back to what happened to the Jews. And we aren't talking about it. And that's so crazy to me. It's just wild. Why are why are why is history not a required class first of all and and why aren't we just constantly reminding everyone of the one, Holocaust and the fact that it happened? One thing I find quite interesting is that I um I took AP World History and um previously it 
it covered a span of like 10,000 BC to 2000. So it was really long. And, you know, you weren't really expected to have that much time to focus on the Holocaust. Um, but I took the revised course, which was for 1200 B, or not 1200 BC, 1200 AD to 2000. And I didn't learn anything about the Holocaust during our, during our World War II unit. Like, I, there was nothing on it. And then I've heard the same, I've heard similar things from my friends that have taken AP Euro, AP European history, that they didn't focus on it much at all. And I don't know if that could have been just the class or if it's the entire curriculum. But, like, these are countrywide curriculums that are covered throughout the United States and parts of Canada and the U.S. territories. And they're not learning about the Holocaust. Yeah, I think uh, in history in general, because I learned the history that I did in eighth grade, I think, was started out at the turn of the century, at the beginning of the 1900s to like the 60s. I don't know. It was a pretty short amount of time and we tried to go into detail. But we, I feel like we spent way too much time talking about like war moves. And it was like, this country did this next. But then we barely spent any time talking about the actual crimes against humanity, which I think are way more relevant and important. And those are things that need to be talked about instead of what each country, like how each country reacted. Like, sure, that's relevant, but also why isn't there more time spent about talking about real human issues? Another thing is that... um about the new AP World course, it starts at about 1200, right? That completely westernizes and whitewashes history because that completely skips over like the golden ages in Asia and Africa and the biggest, strongest dynasties in those places are just completely ignored. That makes me so mad. Okay, my teacher was really good about teaching about the stuff beforehand. And teaching us about um, like the kingdoms of Africa and the dynasties of China and um, and um, the oh gosh I forgot <laughs> the system of samurais in Japan I'm so sorry I forgot the name of that system but it existed um, and stuff in all these other countries before we went to the European stuff but then the European stuff. There was so much European stuff later in the class and like very little about anywhere else. And even the stuff on like South America and um, and like North America and stuff, that was all very European. They didn't focus on the indigenous communities. They focused on the colonization and the effect that had on the indigenous communities. Yeah. Another addition I would like to meet they gloss over the crime committed against the native peoples completely. We learned, they mentioned the Trail of Tears and they're like, oh, it's all cool, bye. One, one thing that I would like to say is that I don't think I've ever learned about the Holocaust in school, ever. No, I don't, I don't think I ever had. Um, Ina, in, in the history classes that you took growing up, it- did they teach much about the Holocaust? Good in question. Courses? No, um, I don't think I don't think we did. I, and I I took um, I took AP history 
I was actually in school, in high school in Oregon, uh, and I took AP history for two years, and we covered, but that was American history, and it was an excellent course, but it was U.S. history. I think we must have done World War One and World War Two, and maybe a, maybe just a, you know, couple of sentences about the Holocaust, but I don't think so. I don't remember. And I would have noticed because I was very aware of it. I'm kind of shocked that you guys are getting basically no history at all. Now, my other question is, because um, I know that um, people are going out to the schools and talking about the kind of stories that, you know, personal stories about the Holocaust. Have, have any of your schools hosted any of the speakers from the Holocaust Center? Um, I remember in sixth grade, we had this woman come in I talked to Priyanka about this over text oh. a while ago, but we had this woman come in who, who like acted her own, like a one woman play about Anne Frank. And it was the weirdest thing ever. Oh, it was like, it was, it was like a dramatization of her time in the annex, but it was just her acting by herself with like a track in the background playing music and sound effects. And it was just strange to watch because it was like, she was like, that's like mocking. But, like, doing an over-dramatization of Anne Frank and her story. And, like, that's not the way that you should learn about the Holocaust. You should learn about it from people or from people who've experienced it or people who know people who have experienced it. Yeah, I think one, one of the big problems is that the generation that went through the Holocaust is, is getting rather... The, the, they're dwindling. They, there's not as many people that that are around anymore. And that's extremely sad because we can't now it's all hearsay because we have we can only read and we can only we can only <laughs> like listen we can't listen necessarily to to people who have been through it anymore. And so yeah what it, you do what you do get now though what the Holocaust Center is doing I don't mean to be plugging the Holocaust Center but um <laughs> um we have now created a group of what are called legacy speakers. In other words, the children, and in some cases, the grandchildren of the survivors have gone and researched the stories of their parents or grandparents and are going to the schools and telling those stories. I did one like the legacy things with the show, with the show that I was in about the Holocaust. We got um, a Holocaust survivor and then his daughter and his daughter did most of the speaking. And it, I don't know. Um, it wasn't the exact same as hearing it from him, but it was still a really insightful experience and something that I really, really enjoyed. And she told his story faithfully and didn't try and didn't like try to dilute it at all with their own opinions and um, her own feelings, which was great. Um, and she answered all of our questions and stuff. So, I mean, I feel like we'll always have those written accounts and we'll always have those um, those poems and songs that were written. And so history can, the telling of history can get diluted, but we'll always have those original resources. The Nazis actually went back and destroyed evidence of what they did when they knew that they were going to lose the war. They were just like, fine, if we're going to lose the war, we're going to lose it on our own terms. And so a lot of historical evidence was lost there. Oh, this is not in our question list, but I think it's interesting and important to talk about. I just want to bring up the subject of Holocaust deniers. 
I don't know. I read a very interesting book a while back. I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was about a young man who grew up in a white supremacist family, grew up to be a Holocaust denier, all the rest of it. And um, his family sent him to a liberal arts college. This was somebody who was associated with David Duke, if the name means anything. Um, he was a big name in, in that whole movement. And the family sent him to a, um, a liberal arts college, hoping that he would convert them to his views. And what happened was that they ended up converting him to their views, and he ended up changing his mind, dropping out of the organization, and doing the work of the opposition, if you will, going around and speaking on behalf of the people who had been hurt by the Holocaust. So I found that a very hopeful book because, aha, it is possible through education, through personal contacts, to get people to change their minds. And he had a lot to lose because he was being groomed as the next Puba of whatever organization it was. And it was one of those bad organizations. I'm, I'm simplifying a bit, um, and I'm, I'll come up with a name eventually. But um, I thought that was a hopeful account because um, I think there are more and more Holocaust deniers. I think it's becoming kind of in. European countries have, or some European countries have dealt with it by making it a crime. Of course, then you, then you trespass on free speech. So I'm not convinced that that's necessarily a good solution. I know that France still has that law in place. I don't know about other countries in Europe. I think Germany as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you can do except to just, you know, tell the truth. Yeah, one of the problems with all of this, and it was, it's been brought up before, um, is that if you tell a lie, and I think our political situation today is, is very much, you know, it's very apropos in today's political situation. Goebbels, who was a specially appointed minister of propaganda, they had a minister for propaganda back in those days in the Nazi government. And he said quite openly, he said, if you tell a lie loudly and often enough, it will be believed. And it's, it's true. And we're seeing evidence of that today um, where people are believing things where you look at it and you go, you know, using your intellect, you go, excuse me, really? But people want to believe it and they're hearing it often enough and loudly enough that they do end up believing it. So, so I don't know. I think all we can do is, you know, what you're doing is educate ourselves, get the, get the stories as you, that you can, and, and go out there and, and form, you know, do podcasts and, and, and do presentations and, and talk to your friends. Um, it's kind of, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, but that, I think that's the only way we're going to ever change anything. No, <laughs> um, I just point a little, uh, a little hopeless, I'm sorry to say. Uh, you have no idea how, uh, many illusions we had after, at, at the end of World War II. We thought, well, mankind couldn't get any lower than what we had gone through. And there was a tremendous amount of goodwill in uh, the United Nations and so on. And uh, we would not make the same mistakes that we made in the, uh, in the first half of the 20th century. And now 
we are in, in such a horror situation in this country and in many other countries. Uh, exactly the same mean, hyper-nationalistic, ugly spirit that was rampant in Germany in the 1930s. We are living through here now, and I'm absolutely dumbfounded, I must say. I remember as a child, I was faulting my parents who had grown up as citizens of Germany. How come you let Hitler get to power? Why didn't you do anything about it? Now here I am, a citizen of the United States, and look who is in power and how little I am doing and how little I can do. So I am, at this point, certainly not a source of inspiration. I'm just hanging in by the skin of my teeth and hoping that I will snap out of this rather negative mode before I leave this planet. I'm sorry, but I'm very pleased that you guys are trying. Keep trying and don't listen to me. <laughs> Do listen to her, but keep trying anyway. <laughs> I know that I know a lot of people in my classes who have been like, why didn't the people like just fight against Hitler? But I feel like that also applies to a lot of ourselves and a lot of the social things that are going on right now. And a lot and um and a lot of people who aren't fighting against um um systematic like racism and stuff like that. And they can say, why didn't people fight against Hitler and all of these different things? But I feel like we're experiencing that, not not to that degree at all, but we're experiencing something kind of similar right now. And people are being biased, can be, or a lot of people are being bystanders and a lot of people are it's easier to look back and say he should have she should being, have are spreading have. activism about but this and much trying to do something so i just found that decision. kind of interesting right i have a couple of things to add one on on people saying that people should have done something humanity tends to cry over spilt milk we don't like to admit that things have happened until they've happened until the afterwards saying oh no oh no look at this thing that's happened what do we do what do we do we can make sure it never happens again but when it does if it does happen again i'm not going to put in the effort to stop it but oh no look oh poor people you know we like to do that but we don't like to 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 be activists necessarily essentially not fully jewish and we manipulated our papers and proved in quotation mark that my mother was not Jewish at all. And so she and my sisters and I could take off the yellow star. And my father was the only one who was a Jew in the family, was a mixed family, and we survived a buffer out, more or less. That's, that's the gist of the story. But uh, uh, if truth be told, I'm three quarters Jewish, okay? But officially, officially I'm only half Jewish, <laughs> whatever difference that makes. Uh, I'm not a practicing Jew at all. Uh, I feel close to the Quakers. I went to a Quaker school and I like the pacifism of the Quakers. Uh, I like pacifism. In fact, when we became American citizens in 1963, we, we did not swear that we would take up arms for this country. We said we were pacifists and we would 
in fact, this country, but not with arms. So we made that stick. So that little bit gives you a little bit of, of my background. I'm honestly good as a pacifist. But uh, as I said before, I don't have any nice recipe for you young people what to do in order to make it make a difference. All you can do and all that I can do is keep trying. We, uh, don't don't give up just because it looks kind of hopeless. You never know whom you inspire or what uh, who cares the ball that you have bought in. Uh, we have to keep trying, uh, or else we can't look at our own uh, face in the mirror. You know, if we do nothing, then we then uh, that would be giving up, and we shouldn't do that. So I'm delighted that you take the initiative to educate yourself and I think you do this on a very nice level. I'm quite impressed. Okay, so what's the moral of the story? I don't think Anne wrote her diary to have a specific moral, but what I would take from it is that you never know how far your words and actions will reach. If you have something that you really want to do or say, you should do it, even if you think nobody will hear, because you never really know, do you? Thank you for listening to Moral of the Story, A Journey Through Generations. Please follow our socials. You can yell about books with us on Instagram and our Twitter at Moral OTS Podcast. You can find this podcast wherever one would obtain podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else. Please become a patron on Patreon. Search patreon.com slash moral of the story. You can get a shout out on this podcast, bonus content, and much more. Look on the website to see what's being offered. We need your support to continue. So please check out the Patreon. And remember that this is a word of mouth podcast. So if you like what you heard, remember to spread the word. We challenge you to tell two other people to listen. Our podcast would benefit immensely. So tell your mom, tell your dad, tell your significant other, tell your best friend. Now we have an email so you can reach us directly. The email ID is moralofthestorycast at gmail.com. And most importantly, If you're going to take away anything from this outro, if you are listening on the podcasting app on your iPhone, remember to rate and review. If you rate and review, then it will make it easier for other people to find our podcast and it would really show your support. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for the next episode. And remember, just keep reading.